And now I think Julie's going to bring us our readings. Bible reading is from Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 23 and going into chapter 3, verse 12. So on page 53 of the Pew Bibles. So starting chapter 2, verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. And the Gospel reading is from John chapter 8, starting at verse 31. on page 108 of the New Testament. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, 
We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying, you'll be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me because there is no place in you for my word. I declare what I have seen in the Father's presence. As for you, you should do what you have heard from the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Well, good morning as we begin. Why don't we, I want us to turn back to page 13 in the, in the Old Testament part of the, of the Bibles. We're going to start there in a moment. Before, before we start, you should have one of these when you were, when you came in. You should have one of them. If you haven't, there's one on the table. Also, for those of you who maybe aren't coming along on a Tuesday night, we are following this book, which I think is a, is a, is a brilliant book. And, Basically, if you want to get one of these copies, because you're not here on a Sunday, but you, on a Tuesday night, but you want to kind of keep along, along with what's going on as we're going through this Sunday series, then there's some books on the table there, and they cost, they cost five pounds, so if you want to take one of them, just leave the money there, and Julie will pick it up, hopefully, at the end of the service, because I'll be at St. George's by then. And then the final thing is, if you want one of these... You can't necessarily see it from there, but you're trying to think, right, how does the Bible all fit together in terms of this timeline model that we're looking at? Where do the books sit in it? There's this very helpful diagram that is in this book, but if you don't want to pay five pounds for the book, then I've photocopied some, and they're on the table as well, and you might find that helpful as we're going through this series. Shall we pray? So gracious God, as King David prayed, show us your paths and teach us your ways. For you are God, our Saviour, and our hope is in you all day long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're looking on Sunday mornings from September through to November at, if you like, the big story of the Bible, and we're looking at one way in which that can be expressed, if you like, through the front page of of the handout in that timeline model, and we're trying to put it together to try to understand what the Bible means. And last week we began by looking at the big story of the Bible from the book of Genesis, and how that introduces us to two central themes that run right the way throughout the Bible. The first is the story of creation, where we looked at the, how it answers the big questions in life. Why am I here? Why is there good and evil? Who is God? Who am I? And if you want more on that, then last week's message is, is up online. The second key theme that it introduces is this unifying theme that runs all the way throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the theme of covenant. This idea where God makes, or the more precise idea is of God cutting a covenant between him and his people. 
It can be summed up more simply in these words. I will be your God and you will be my people. And you'll find that if you were to read the Old Testament and the New Testament, right the way through to Revelation 21, you'll find it there. I will be your God and you will be my people. It just simply sums up this commitment that God makes, this agreement that God makes between him and his people. That no matter what, they're to stick together. And we saw last week at the beginning as we, as we looked last week, we saw how there are five covenants, if you like, in the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with Noah last week. We ended up last week with God making the covenant with Abraham that we'll touch on in a moment. And we know also that God made a covenant with Moses through the chapters that we would read this week and through King David before the prophet spoke of a new covenant being written. Here's the important point that Christians often forget or can get confused about. There, isn't, there are not five separate covenants. It's not like God made a covenant with Noah and then when he made a covenant with Abraham, he ripped up the one with Noah. What they are, are the same covenant that is just expressed differently, if you like, as the people of God start to move out, as they move out into a new chapter of their lives. So a new covenant needs to be cut to express how they're to live together. And so we ended up last time looking at this covenant that God makes with Abraham, this childless old man. Yet through this covenant, God promises that he will become a great nation. Yet he's more than 75 years old, he's got no children. And yet if we look on the inside of our handout this morning, we see how God's promise to Abraham comes true. And you can, you can see that through, if you like, the Abraham's family tree. You can see how it all fits together. And I've put below that the biblical references. So you can read all about it if you want through the rest of the book of Genesis. How God's promise to Abraham comes through Isaac, then through Jacob, and of course, most famously, as we know, perhaps through the iconic and epic stories of Joseph. But in making this covenant with Abraham, God reveals to him, if you like, also that at some stage in the future, things will not always be straightforward for his descendants. If we look at Genesis 15 and verses 12 through to 14, we can see there how God says to Abraham, know this for certain that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there and they shall be oppressed for 400 years before being delivered. Which is kind of where we're at just about at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So this morning what we're going to try and do is we're not just going to try and do, if you like, the first 15 chapters of Genesis. We're going to do the whole of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And the good news for you is that I'm leading at St. George's at 11 o'clock. So just in case you might be thinking it might be a long time, it can't be too long, but there's 150 pages that we've kind of got to sum through as we go and look at the big story of the Bible. And if we were to try and explain four chapters, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy in one word, 
If Genesis means beginning, which it does, how do we put the next four chapters together? And if I was to use one word, it would be this. Journey. You see, together with Genesis, if you like, none of these five books is complete in itself. You know, imagine your favorite TV series that might have been running for maybe five series. And you've got to the end of series one. And it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. So you've got to come back to watch the beginning of the second series. And so on. And that's, and that's how it goes. And if you kind of pick up a TV series in the third series, because you've heard something about it beforehand, you've kind of got to binge watch the first two series, haven't you? Because otherwise you're not going to get the story. And it's exactly the same with these, if you like, five, first five books of the Old Testament. They kind of leave you each time on a knife edge with the situation unresolved. And it assumes if you start to read from Exodus that you know Genesis. It assumes if you're about to read Leviticus that you know Genesis and Exodus and so on. And that's how the story works. And perhaps though, the most helpful way of understanding these five books, in particular Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, is through a map. You know, this is all about a journey, isn't it? And so we need a map to try and help us. And that's where, if you like, the last page of the handout helps us. We have this lovely colourful map that we might be dreaming of the sunny beaches by the Mediterranean Sea. And we have a map from what was then 1500 BC. And if we look at this journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, what we can see, if you like, through the numbers that I've put on there, is they start off in the Nile Delta, and they end up eventually in the Promised Land. But through the numbers, you can see how that journey goes. And if you, if you look at them, I've put the, if you like, the, the Bible references next to them. Because sometimes you can read the Bible, especially if you're reading it on a screen, and you can try and think, well, how does it all fit together? What's going on? Where are they? And through this map and through the references, you can kind of see how their journey meanders. And so in this journey, what we can identify, if you like, is three things. We can identify one central character, Moses. This is all about, if you like, one man's quest to lead the people of God from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. It's, though, not just a narrative. Because at key points, they kind of stop. Most crucially, they stop at Mount Sinai, and they're given three precious gifts, if you like, that form the very foundation of Judaism. Many of them they still practice today. The law is given, the tabernacle is given, and the sacrifice system. And those three key gifts... And I use the word gifts deliberately, form the basis of their relationship with God. And then there are two predominant characteristics that keep coming out as we read these pages over and over again, which are critical to what happened on the journey. And they're these, fear and faith. And the two of those things, fear and faith, are just critical 
to anyone, just as critical to anyone walking with God today. And so we begin. And we begin, if you like, by turning to page 52. And on page 52, we're at the start of the book of Exodus. And really, at the start of the book of Exodus, there's no real sense of the difficulties ahead. The end of Genesis has finished with kind of Joseph being on this crest of a wave, being number two in Egypt. And then he dies. And that whole generation dies. But the Israelites are still living in Egypt. And there comes a time after so long where people forget who Joseph was. People forget the, all that he did for Egypt. But the Israelites are still living there. And they're, if you like, being fruitful and multiplying. They're increasing greatly in size. And that's the problem. Because they're a threat. They're a threat to the Egyptians by their, by their very size. A story from 1500 BC kind of rings out so true all around places of Europe today. As people leave another land and they want to come and live in another land and all of a sudden they become bigger and they become a threat. And so, what do they do? Well, out of fear, we read, the Egyptians make the Israelites into their slaves, basically, thereby fulfilling what Abraham said in Genesis 15, and that's how the pyramids were built. And at some stage, also we read, that they start to try to control the population growth by murdering, if they can, any Israeli boy that is born to Israeli parents. And this is the era that Moses was born in. Exodus 2, we can read about it. And Moses, we know if you know the story, has this miraculous escape, doesn't he? He has this miraculous escape as a baby and becomes, in the words of Disney, the prince, a prince of Egypt. And he lives this life of privilege for the first 40 years of his life. And then something happens. He sees an Egyptian beating, if you like, one of his fellow Hebrews. And he reacts. He can't stand it anymore. He's probably watched it for 40 years going on and he's been a closet Israelite. And he just reacts. Something just happens. And he thinks no one has seen him killing that Egyptian, but someone has and his secret's out. And as a result, he has to flee from Pharaoh's presence. And he spends the next 40 years as a fugitive in the wilderness. If you like the very wilderness that he will lead a little later the people of God through into the promised land. And it's at this time, if you like, that our reading that was read for us happens. Because the Israelites are groaning. They've had 400 years of slavery. And we read how God heard their cries. And God remembered them. The word remembered there doesn't mean that God had forgotten them. What it means is this. It means that God was about to act. 
And he was about to act by calling the man Moses. Now a shepherd arriving at Mount Horeb. We know it as Mount Sinai today or the mountain of God. And he has this personal encounter with the living God where God introduces himself in verse 14 of chapter 3 when Moses kind of asks, well, what's your name? And God introduces himself as I am. The Hebrew word there means Yahweh, the personal name for God. If you like, it's God's most personal name out of all the names in the Bible. That's his most personal name. God, if you like, is a bit like a title. But Yahweh was his name. It was this most precious name. And of course, the story goes on for Moses, even though he's a very reluctant leader, a very reluctant leader, and he does not want to do what God has called him to. He goes. And if we read on in the story, we know that things get bad before they get and worse than before they get better. And it takes the last of the ten plagues before the Israelites are finally released from their bondage by Pharaoh. And on the night before they're released, they eat this famous meal. The famous meal that we reenact in communion a bit later this morning. The Passover meal. And then they flee quickly on the next day. And they start this journey. But if you, if you notice on that, on that map, you could see the Israel, if you like, was in the Nile Delta. You could see where the promised land is. But you'll notice, for very good reasons, God doesn't take them on the shortcut. And you can read about that in Exodus 13. Instead, he takes them, shall, well, shall we call it the scenic route? The thing about the scenic route is this. Even that scenic route should take them no more than a month. But in reality, a four-week journey takes 42 and a half years. And if we were to look at that journey, you could split it into two. The first bit, if you like, is leaving Egypt and getting to, to Mount Sinai. And that's a mere sprint, because it should take 11 days and it takes them two years. And they arrive once more at Mount Sinai. If you like, we're now, if you want a Bible reference, we're now kind of at Exodus 19, where once more, Moses has a life-changing encounter with the living God. And God cuts a covenant with Moses. And these three precious gifts are given. The law, the sacrifice system, and the tabernacle. If we want to look at the law, how would we sum it up? Well, it's just God saying this. I care about you. You know, when we think about the law... And often when we think about the law, we think of the, perhaps the Ten Commandments. But as we've kind of outlined the narrative, what I find that Christians and Jews as well often forget is this. What comes first? Salvation from slavery or the law? Yet, 
so often, Christians, never mind Jews, often live straight-jacketed from the law and thinking salvation is all about your good works and not by faith. And then when we think about the law, what we should remember, what we often forget, is that the law wasn't given out of a sense of duty. The law was given out of a sense of love. And the pinnacle of the law, if you like, comes in Exodus 19 and 20 through the giving of the Ten Commandments. If you like, this basic moral code of how humanity should live by. If you like, it's still the foundation, isn't it, of the Western legal framework. But what happened as life went on was those Ten Commandments kind of like, well, then there were other questions. And so more laws had to be written. In the end, there were 613 laws of Judaism. And they split them into three categories. They split them into civil laws, if you like, that often concerned issues like humanitarian issues or issues like marriage and divorce. Then there were, if you like, the next type of laws were the ceremonial laws. They were the food laws, what you could eat and how food had to be prepared. They were the cleansing rituals that they followed. And the third were the moral laws, if you like, the Ten Commandments, but, but more than that. And often for us today, as we look back at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we try to understand the Old Testament, and we think, well, we live in the New Testament, so it doesn't apply. Or does it? Which parts of the law apply still today? And the question is, it depends upon the type of the law. So the civil laws basically were given to the nation Israel. They were, if you like, not binding on Christians today, but we'll find much wisdom in them that we'd be wise to follow. Then when we think about the ceremonial laws, well, in effect, society has moved on. So they're not binding today, but the moral laws, or oh, the moral laws most definitely are. And what we forget about the Ten Commandments is this wasn't the maximum. The Ten Commandments was the minimum. This was the minimum that we were to live by. And through the law, God was saying, I care about you. Then there came the tabernacle. Through the tabernacle, God was saying, I am with you. Because what was happening as the Israelites were moving around, if you like, they were living in tents. And then at various stages, they would stop along the way and they would get out their tents. And then they suddenly thought, well, we need to build a tent for God. And that's what, in effect, the tabernacle was. If you like, it was God's home among the campsite. That was where they went to meet God. And of course, as the story goes on, the tabernacle becomes the temple. If you like, this place where heaven and earth meet, because that's the place that God resides. And what we often forget, don't we? It's like with a church. It's not about a building. It's about the people and the relationships that God has with his people. So there was the tabernacle, there was the law, and there was the sacrifice system, which, if you like, could be summed up in these few words, God saying, 
I forgive you. Now, when it comes to the sacrifice system, what we have to remember is this. It was, it was very messy. And sometimes we don't like to think about the sacrifice system today because it involved killing animals, and we quite rightly don't like that. But it was part of Jewish life, everyday Jewish life. It was very messy because life was very messy. We just kind of mock up. That's how it goes. And the sacrifices were performed daily by the priests. Daily exercise. All the time. Don't know how many hundreds of animals were slaughtered every single day. So you can imagine what that was like. But then there came a time. We're now at Leviticus 16. Where Moses' brother Aaron, who's the high priest, two of his sons rebel and they're killed. And then kind of like this new way is introduced. They'll still sacrifice daily. But there'll be a special day, a special day that's still celebrated in the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was this special day where all of Israel gathered. It didn't matter how old you were or how young you were. It didn't matter whether you were male or female, whatever. You all gathered in front of the tabernacle. And then what would happen is, is the high priest would come out and he would have with him two spotless goats. If the goat had any deformity in any way, it wasn't. These were spotless goats. And on the first goat, what would happen is this. The priest would just sacrifice it. And then he'd take the blood. And what he'd do with the blood was this. He'd kind of go in the tabernacle and sprinkle it on all the parts of the tabernacle. And then he would start to sprinkle it on the people as a sign that what was happening was that this perfect goat, if you like, was covering for all the Israelite sins. Now, what we've got to remember is this. is This is 1500 BC. So there's no magic washing powder or no magic sort of like things that's going to take this blood out of your coats. It's not like we've got a whole wardrobe of clothes here. And this blood will kind of stay with you as a reminder. And then what the high priest would do is he'd, he'd take the other goat. And what he'd do is he'd put his hands on the other goat. And what he'd be doing is he'd be passing on all of our sins, if you like, and his sins onto the goat. And then what he would do is he would lead the goat to the edge of the camp and then release the goat into the wilderness. The goat probably wouldn't want to go because the other goats just died quicker. But the same thing will happen to this God out in the wilderness. So it kind of push him out. That's where the whole idea of the scapegoat comes from. And these three gifts were foundational to Jewish life. The law, the tabernacle, the sacrifice system. And then the journey moves on. And the journey moves on from Mount Sinai. And it should have taken them 12 days to get from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. In effect, it takes them 40 years. The reason it takes them so long to 
get from Mount Sinai to the promised land is because exactly the same reason that it takes us often so long to get it. Because of this thing of fear versus faith. And as we travel, are they going to trust in the Lord who's delivered them from slavery just as we travel? Are we going to trust in the Lord that he is going to be faithful? And the reason it took them so long was because over and over again, the Israelites kind of go round and round in circles. That's kind of what happens if you like. They let their fear of the situation each time that they face, they let it shackle them. They let it imprison them. And it kind of chains and binds them up over and over again. You know, we see it almost as soon as they as they leave Egypt. Almost as soon as they've left Pharaoh's presence, they, they start to head towards the Red Sea. And Pharaoh suddenly thinks, I've made this great mistake, letting all my slaves go. So what does he do? He sends the army after them. So they can see behind them this Egyptian army coming towards them and all they can see is the Red Sea ahead. Are we going to put our faith in God or are we going to get scared? And of course they did the latter. That's why you see the significance of the song that we kind of just sang. You split the sea. So I could walk right through it. That's the symbolism behind it. And Moses says to them to not be scared, but to have faith. And of course, we know the end of that story. But then as they're journeying, if you like, through the wilderness, on three different occasions, they get scared again. They get scared because they are running out of water. And God provides for them at Marah, at Massa, and at Meribah. On two separate occasions, they get scared because they're running out of food. And God provides for them once more. But of course, most famously, we see this whole area of fear entering the situation as they're about to send the scouts out to look and survey the promised land. And so they send out 12 spies, 12 of their number. And they come back and they all report, oh yeah, it's as good as you said, but 10 present a message of fear and 2 present a message of faith. And the rest believe the 10. And it's catastrophic. And that's how they spend 40 years just kind of going nowhere. Even though they've had the pillar of the cloud of God's presence and the pillar of the fire leading them. And despite God's faithfulness to them over and over and over again, fear creeps in. And they kind of get stuck in reverse with their faith. You see, fear and faith go together in the Christian life. And faith in God Abandons trust in everyone else. It's about laying down our security blankets and saying to the Lord, you're right about everything. 
Faith in God overcomes fear to believe. Because it's always about who we put our faith in. And if we don't take those risks, then we'll always go round and round in circles. And the journey for the Israelites took them 42 and a half years. And it has so many, if you like, parallels to our journey of faith today. You see, in Judaism, and therefore in the Old Testament, there was no one like Moses. Absolutely no one. There was no one more higher than Moses. Not even Abraham, not even King David. Moses is the pinnacle. He was held in the highest esteem. This was the man who saw God face to face and lived. Until the face of God did come. Jesus Christ. Described in the Bible as the new Moses. And if you think about those three gifts that God gave, that's why the the New Testament talks of Jesus in so many of those ways. If you think about it just for a minute. On Mount Sinai, God introduces himself as I am. And what does Jesus say? So many times in in John's Gospel, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. And so on, and so on, and so on. Remembering those gifts that God gave to us, what do we often say at Christmas in those famous words from John 1 verse 14? We say, and he came among us. The word there is tabernacled, that he tabernacled with us and came among us with his presence. Jesus was saying, I'm the one. I'm God who's come in the present. God, Jesus brought us the gift of God's presence, which we can know through the Holy Spirit. But through his life, Jesus also brought us the gift of his love. You see, he showed us how to live a life of love when we think about it for a minute. And he took the sick, the burden, if you like, of trying to follow and remember 613 laws. And he just through the yoke of his teaching, he brought them down to two. To love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And putting the two together is highly significant. They go together. He gave us the gift of his love. And through his sacrifice, Jesus brought us the gift of knowing peace and forgiveness with God. That's what we'll remember in a minute as we celebrate communion. As Jesus would do on the night before he died and celebrated that Passover meal. That's why when John the Baptist said of Jesus, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it was a heavily loaded statement. Because all of them would remember the Day of Atonement. And here is the Lamb of God. Now, if you like the scapegoat, the Passover Lamb, who would now take away the sin of the world. All of it. Once and for all. So that we never have to be chained in our fear. So that we never have to be chained or burdened by our guilt 
and our shame because Jesus took the walk for us as he walks into the wilderness of Golgotha and says, I'm taking it away. It's done. It's gone. And through believing in faith, in Jesus' saving death, that's how you meet Jesus. That's how we know him. As the writer to the Hebrews so famously said, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see, Jesus invites all of us, doesn't he? He invites all of us to make him the vision for our lives. And he says all the time, keep looking at me. Keep looking at me. Keep looking at what I've done for you. And keep looking and keep trusting in me. And whatever the circumstances and the situations we face, whatever the fears that will come, because if you want to grow in your faith, you will have to experience fear. It just goes with it. But each time he just says, make me your vision. Keep looking at me. Keep watching me. Keep reminding yourself of what I have done for you. And keep trusting in me. And then that's how fear doesn't shackle us. That's how we're no longer a slave. That's where we're no longer held bondage to it. Because keep looking at him. And he sets us free. Let us pray. Gracious God, your love is amazing, and we thank you for it. So help us today, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.